Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We began last week looking at this chapter. We saw the context of this section back in Jerusalem at the Pool of Bethesda. These pools, these springs bubbling up. There was no angel doing the stirring. That was a tradition And Jesus steps into this place because a lot of people thought that they could be healed by jumping into this spring, these pools. Jesus chooses this pool at this time, on this day, Sabbath day, to heal this one man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And in doing that, he brings attention to his deity. He shows forth his deity. He claims to be God And we ended in chapter 5, verse 17, last week. What I want to do this morning is I want to pick it back up in verse 17. And we're going to take a large chunk, verses 17 through 30. I'm going to read these verses, and we're going to pray and ask God's blessing on our time. And as we go through, Jesus is going to give us a discourse on himself, that he is the Son of God, that he is God, very God. He's going to claim to be equal with God in six different ways. And then I believe he's going to back up those claims by describing what he does and how he does it as we get to the end of our passage this morning. So off of the heels of healing this man, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders come and they say, who healed you? And you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to walk around with your pallet. And this man calls out Jesus, singles him out. And it says, verse 16, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath day. He could have done these things on any day. He does it on the Sabbath. But he answers them. And he says, verse 17, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son, shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone. He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. 
those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Father, these verses are so rich, so I pray that your spirit would clarify as we dive into these verses, would give us the gift of illumination to see what he penned so many years ago to show us Jesus' deity on full display. And I pray that as we leave here this morning, even though we believe that Jesus is who he claims to be, we would leave with greater awe of that fact, with greater belief rooted in that truth, that you would grow our roots of belief deeper and deeper into the soil of the deity of Jesus Christ. We want to see him. We are changed and transformed by seeing his glory, and his glory is on full display here. So change us as we stare at his glory. We pray in your name. Amen. John chapter 5, verses 17 through 47 is one long discourse spoken all by Jesus. The purpose of the entire section is Jesus proving very clearly that he is the Messiah. And even more than that, that he is the Son of God. We're going to see this morning six ways. I'm just going to actually use John MacArthur's outline, because I think it was very, very helpful. It's just using words that are in this section, and they are six ways in which Jesus is equal to God. He's going to show himself forth in six ways as being equal to God. And then what we're going to do is we're going to see those things on display at the last half of these verses. The heart and soul of the Christian faith is right here because it is a right view of who Jesus is. You cannot be a true Bible-believing Christian, and have a wrong view of Jesus. So these verses, even though you might say, I believe who Jesus is, I know who he is, I believe who he is, these verses are very practical and very important for our souls today because they show us that picture again, and we need to see it. People have said before that Jesus never claimed to be God. And if you've ever heard that, I've heard that several times in sharing the gospel with people. Well, Jesus is just a good teacher. He's a moral man. He's a peaceable guy. But he never claimed to be God. That's absolutely false. He claimed to be God time and time again. That was really the claim that he made. I am the Messiah, the Son of God. That's who I am. Everyone knew that because that's what's going to get him killed. Because he claims to be Messiah, King. And that's what the Jews are going to use to put him on the cross. Because they're going to say, Rome, you don't want another king. He's making himself equal with Caesar. We should kill him before he causes an insurrection. But even in his trials, when the high priest Caiaphas says to him, do you claim to be the Messiah? He doesn't answer because he says, that's not all I claim to be. You're not getting it right. I'm not just Messiah. I am the son of God. I'm God come in the flesh. And so he waits. Caiaphas says a number of other things. And then he says, I ask you again, are you the Messiah, the son of the living God? And Jesus says, now it is as you say. He fully claimed to be God, very God. Now, if he claims that, we really only have two options. Either he truly is or he isn't. 
If he claims to be God, either he truly is God and he's speaking the truth and we should follow him or he's lying. Now, there's only two possibilities in the line. If he's lying, either he knows that he's lying and he's trying to, in a false religion, um, as a false leader, as a false prophet, grab disciples to himself. But he knows. That's option number one. He's lying and he knows it. Or option number two is he's lying and he doesn't know it. Um, We would call those people crazy. They think that they're you know, a poached egg in the morning. They think that they're Santa Claus. They think that they're the Grinch. They think whoever. If God come in the flesh truly is Jesus, then his claims are true. If he isn't God come in the flesh, then he is false. And he's either purposefully speaking false, uh, false facts about who he is, claiming false things, or he doesn't know it. <clears throat> Another way we can say it is C.S. Lewis's three L's. He's either Lord He's either a liar or he's just a lunatic. We have to make a choice. He's going to say, this is who I am, and we have to choose. Is this who he truly is? So we're going to hear him speak this morning. As we hear him speak, we are going to hear his claims to deity, his claims to be God. And after we hear these claims, we have to make a choice. But here's a warning that goes along with that choice. If you don't take Jesus' claims as truth, if you want to say he's just a moral teacher but he's not truly God, then you can't just take Jesus' claims out of the Bible and say, I'll take the rest of it. You have to throw your whole Bible away. If you don't take Jesus for who he claims to be, then you have to throw your entire Bible away. As one pastor says, if you reject the deity of Jesus Christ, then you have just detonated a bomb that has exploded your entire Bible. You must understand that warning. So many people want to pick and choose from the Bible. We can't do that. So let's listen to him with that warning in place. Are we going to take him and what he says in the whole Bible, or are we going to reject him and what he says, and therefore the whole Bible? Let's listen to Jesus' claims that he makes to be God. There are six of them. Let me give them to you up front, and then we'll go through them one by one. He claims to be equal to God in nature. He claims to be equal to God in works. He claims to be equal to God in power. He claims to be equal to God in authority. He claims to be equal to God in honor or worship, and he claims to be equal to God in his words and his truth. Number one, nature. He claims, Jesus makes the claim that he is God and he is in in his nature equal to God. Verse 17, he answers the religious leaders. Remember John's word, Uh, Jews is a reference to the religious leaders. So verse 16, the Jews are trying to persecute Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. That's the issue. He did things on the Sabbath. Notice, Jesus does not answer them about the Sabbath issue. He says, I'm God. I can do whatever I want. He pulls back to a bigger issue. He doesn't answer their specific Sabbath question. I, I just think we can stop right there and there's implication for us. How many times when we're going through trials, we're going through difficulties, do we say, Jesus, I'm struggling with this thing, and Jesus doesn't answer that thing. He just says, I'm God. I'm God. If you'll believe me and follow me and trust me, you'll be fine. And in claiming to be God, he answers that one thing and so many other things. So he's not going to answer their specific question. Verse 17, they're asking him, so it says he answered them, and he answers them by saying, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. 
And because of this, verse 18, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. They were seeking to persecute him. Now they're seeking to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God, equal, isos. We saw that word in Philippians chapter 2 where Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Equal, isos, where we get isosceles, equal sides uh, in the triangle. He's equal to God. The Jews got it. They knew that he was claiming to be God. Now, how is he claiming to be God? How is he doing that? He says, my father is working and I myself am working. He claims to be God in two ways. He claims to be God by saying that God is his father. And he claims to be God by saying that he is doing the exact same works that his father is doing. Now, there's a rabbinical issue here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees liked to debate and argue over things. And we talked about the 39 categories of Sabbath laws and rules that they had made and all the subset categories last week. They had a question. And the question was this. Does God keep the law? Does God keep the law? Their answer is yes, God keeps the law. He made the law, he keeps the law. Then the next question is, if he keeps the law, what does he do on the Sabbath? What does he do on the Sabbath? They kind of got stuck because they realized God upholds the universe, keeps it all together. He works really hard on the Sabbath. So they made two rules so that they could kind of fit God into these rules and say that he keeps the Sabbath. Rule number one is you could carry something on the Sabbath, but you just couldn't hoist it above your shoulders. So if it's something that's small enough, it's something that you can just hold here. You could carry something on the Sabbath. You just couldn't hoist it on your shoulders. That's why the man with the pallet picks up the pallet on his shoulders and is walking, picks up a bed and is walking. They say, you're not allowed to do that. So they said, that's what God does with us. He just holds the universe because he's God. So it's a small thing. He can hold it. He's not holding it on his shoulders. He can just hold it here. The second rule that they made is you could move something from one place to another if it was in your house. Now, there were other rules on top of that. Some of them we even talked about last week. But mainly, you could move things around if they were in your house. So they said, the universe is God's house. He can move things around all he wants. What Jesus says is, my father's never stopped working. He doesn't rest the way that you think he does. He's speaking to the Jews who believe in the Sabbath as a cruel day of ceasing all work, all striving, all practical things. It's, it's become a burden And they have placed God in that box as well. And Jesus says, no, he is working until now. He has been working all the way up into the present. He never stopped. Even when he rested on the Sabbath, he was still working. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, doesn't become weary or tired? He doesn't have to slow down. He doesn't have to stop. He doesn't have to rest. So he says... He's working, and he is my father. This is something that the Jews would never say in saying that you are claiming to be equal to God. Why? Because you're claiming yourself to be the son of God? We saw this in Family Bible Hour this morning. Angry people, hateful, volatile people, Jesus called sons of thunder. Because in their very nature, they are volatile, fierce people. Jesus called the wicked leaders, the religious leaders of that day, sons of Belial, sons of the the devil, because their nature was satanic. 
When you say you are a son of something, you're claiming to be equal in nature and essence to it. And so when Jesus says, I have a father, I am his son, and my father is God who works in an unceasing way. The Jews knew he's claiming to be equal to God. He's equal to God in his very nature, in his essence. Philippians 2 says this, Colossians 1 says this. There are so many passages that we've looked at on the topic of Christology that say Jesus is God. We're going to look at more as we get to Christmas, uh, our Christmas service coming up. Number two, not just nature, Jesus claims to be God in his works. He claims to be equal to God in his works. This is verses 19 through 20. So the Jews say, we don't like this and we want to kill him because not only is he breaking the Sabbath, he's claiming to be God. So verse 19, Jesus answers that and says to them, truly, truly, amen, amen, which just means this is a true statement and it has no possibility of being a contradiction. You can't fight against what I'm about to say. It's true. What does he say? The son can do nothing of himself unless it is something that he sees the father doing. Why? Now, there are four of these, the number four of these four words, F-O-R. We talked last week about what that word is. That word in the Greek is gar, G-A-R. And every time you see that word for, it's a a motivational clause because of this. We call it in biblical studies a gar clause. There are four gar clauses here, and this is the first one. The son can't do anything of himself unless he sees that the father's doing it because whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. We talked about this in Family Bible as, as well. Jesus never acts independently on his own when he's on the earth. He can, but he doesn't because he surrendered the independent exercise of his divine attributes when he came to earth. So he says, I'm not doing anything on my own. I'm not splitting away from the Father and just doing what I want to do. I do whatever the Father does. But the key word there is, for whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. This is specific. It's not saying God does things, I do things, and some of the things that we do fit together, like a Venn diagram. I do things, God does things, and some of those things overlap. Jesus says, whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So it's not just I do everything the Father does. I also do everything the Father does in the exact way the Father does it. So the Father's God. I do everything the Father does in the exact way that the Father does it. I'm equal to him. This is a, this is a beautifully poetic way of saying I'm equal to him. If I do everything the exact same way that somebody else does, we're equal. So, Jesus claims to be equal in his nature to God, and he claims to be equal in his works. Verse 20 gives us another gar clause here. Why does the Son do everything that the Father does? Or how does the Son do everything that the Father does? Second gar clause For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. So how does the Son do everything the exact same way that the Father does? The answer is because the Father shows him everything. The Father tells him exactly what he's doing and says, join me in doing it. Why does he say that? 
Because verse 20, he loves the son. The father loves the son. We'd expect to see the word agape there, right? He loves agape, unconditional love. But it doesn't need to be there because there's no condition upon which Jesus could ever lose the love of the father. So it's phileo. It's, it's a familial love. The love relationship that the father has to the son will never end, has never had a beginning. It always has existed. And so the father says, this is what I'm doing and you're going to do it with me. This is what I'm doing. You're doing it with me. Jesus is a separate person from the father. He has the power to act on his own. But by the virtue of love and the identity within the Godhead, he does no action that the father does not also do. And this clause, verse 20, explains how it is the son can do whatever the father does, namely because of the father loves the son and shows him everything. I love you. I'm not keeping anything a secret. Here's everything I'm doing. What are the greater works? End of verse 20. The greater works are what's going to be seen in verses 24 through 30 that Jesus is going to raise people from the dead. They're going to hear his voice. Dead people are going to hear his voice and obey him. Those are the greater works. So Jesus does everything the Father does, making him equal to God. So he's equal in nature, he's equal in works. Number three, he's equal in power. He's equal in power. The ultimate power in the universe is to give life. This is verse 21. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. The Father raises the dead and gives life. So the son, if he's going to be equal, has to be able to raise the dead and give life. And it says he can give life to whoever he wishes. And we're going to see also that he raises the dead with just a word, with the the sound of his voice. He's equal to God in power. He has life in himself. And we're going to see that as we keep going here. He has life in himself. Number four, not only power to give life but also authority. Verse 22, authority. Jesus is equal to God in nature, works, power, and authority. Verse 22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all the judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Um, Jesus judges everyone because the way that you are judged is what you do with Jesus. Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, Abraham is talking with God. And this is the whole Sodom and Gomorrah issue. Will you spare the city if there's a certain number of people righteous? And he pleads, Abraham pleads with God and says, you are the the judge of the entire earth. You are the judge of the world. The father is the judge, but the father is the judge through Jesus. They judge one and the same. The father judges by sending Jesus and says, what are you going to do with my son? Jesus judges by saying, I am the son of God, and will you believe in me and accept me? And if you do not, then you are judged by the son and the father. It's even going to say that later on, that the father is going to judge. So I think that even though this kind of sounds strange where it says the father doesn't judge anyone, I think what he's saying is here on earth, I am the lightning rod for the judgment of the father. I am the one who judges because by my words, by my actions, you either believe or you do not. What's the whole point of it? It's honor. 
This is number five. He's equal to God in authority because he judges the earth the exact same way that the Father judges the earth. But number five, he's equal to God in honor. So that, verse 23, all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him because we are both God. This is a very difficult concept. How can you be God and be with God? John 1, 1. How can you do that? You can do it if you are a part of the Trinity, if there are three persons in the Godhead. So Jesus says, you honor the Father by honoring me. If you don't honor me, you don't honor the Father. The Father is God, therefore I am God. Therefore I am God. And you cannot embrace God the Father if you do not embrace me. Number six, finally, in verse 24, he says that we speak the same words. I'm equal to the, I'm equal to the Father. I'm equal to God in my words or in my truth. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. If you hear my words, you are hearing the message of the one who sent me. So I love that it's a very poetic way of saying that. And that song came upon a midnight clear. Melody breaks through the silence. God speaks the word into humanity as a love song from God. His words, Jesus' words, are God's message to us. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, God spoke through prophets and, and all of those different people, but now he has spoken through his son. You need to listen to him. And if you do listen to him and you believe, then you have eternal life. You don't go into judgment, but you've passed out of death into life. We will not only have eternal life, but we already have it. We will not only come in, um, not come into the judgment, we've already passed out of it. This has already happened. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you follow him, then your judgment has already been paid on Jesus at the cross. That's what we're going to celebrate. And your life has already been given. Your eternal life has already been given now because you have a reconciled relationship with Jesus. So Jesus claims, I am equal to God in my nature, in my works, in my power, in my authority, in my honor or worship, and in my words. My words is God the Father's message. We have one in the same voice. And if you believe it, you've already passed from death to life. So those are the claims that Jesus makes about himself. But now what he's going to do is he's going to zero in on a specific issue, the resurrection of the dead. And as he does this, I think we can lay those six things on top of it. I think that you will be able to see those six areas of being equal to God will be seen in what Jesus is about to say. So as we go through this, we'll just kind of pick back up on these uh, six ways in which Jesus is equal to God. Verses 25 through 26, we are going to see Jesus has the power to give life. Uh, We already saw that in verse 21. Power is equal to God. He has the power to give life. And he has the power to give life through the words that he says, through his truth, through words, which is back in verse 24 that we already saw. So power to give life, words of life, words of truth. Both equal to God. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
Now, upon first reading, I thought, okay, we're talking about the resurrection from the dead. We die. Our bodies go into the grave. Jesus says, come forth. We come forth. But I actually don't think that's the case. I think that this is a reference to spiritual deadness and spiritual life. And here's why. Number one, he says, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now is. What he's going to say in verse uh, 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. So one thing that he's talking about, an hour is coming and is happening right now. And then one resurrection he's going to talk about is an hour that's coming and it hasn't started happening yet. So there's a future resurrection in verse uh, 28, and there's a present resurrection. And he also says in verse 28, he specifies all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. So dead people in the tombs, and they're going to come forth to a resurrection of life and to a resurrection of judgment. I believe that verses 28 and 29 are clearly about the end times when Jesus raises every single dead person physically. And we're going to talk about that. But verse 25, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of God and those who hear will live. So there are certain ones that hear and live. There's not a talk of technically using the word resurrection from the dead. Um, it's just hear, dead people hearing and coming to life. I believe it's a reference to spiritual deadness and spiritual life. Spiritual death. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we've heard the voice of Jesus who has raised us from the dead. And because that is happening, because we hear, Jesus has the power to grant eternal life, spiritual life, through the words that he says. His power is equal to God. He has the power to give life. And his words are equal to God. The Father's words are the Son's words are God's words. So they hear and they live. Spiritually dead people being raised to life is a miracle. It's a miracle. Some people say, well, I don't, I don't remember when that happened. I've always been alive, as far as I can remember. I, I can't remember when my spiritual life happened. Um, I think this is very helpful. G. Campbell Morgan said it this way. He was preaching a sermon, and in the sermon he said, By no means can every Christian remember the exact time when he was born again. A lot of people come to me and they say, I don't remember the day, the time. There are, there are certain people that remember the day and the, the second I don't remember that. G. Campbell Morgan says, by no means can every Christian remember that. Somebody stands up in the middle of a sermon, says no, <laughs> challenges the statement. I think that everybody can and should remember the exact moment that they're saved. And G. Campbell Morgan says, um, sir, are you alive? The man says, why, of course I am. He says, well, do you remember when you were born? What was it like? He says, no, I, I don't remember when I was born. I just know I'm alive. He says, exactly. Some Christians may not remember the exact moment of their new birth, but they are spiritually alive now. They know it, and that is what counts. I think that's so helpful. If you are spiritually alive, then you know that you have heard the voice of Jesus and have passed from death to life. 
The new birth is a great mystery. We spent a number of weeks talking about it. It's a great mystery, but it is a very simple process. Hear, believe, come alive. Hear, believe, come alive. In verse 26, Jesus says, Just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus said earlier that he is by his very nature equal to God, and here he's saying the exact same thing. He's already re-emphasized, I am equal to God in power and in my words, and now he's going to say I'm equal to God in my nature. God has life in himself. He doesn't need anyone else to support him. He doesn't need anyone else to sustain him. Jesus is the exact same way. We call this in theology uh, the, the aseity of God. It's from a Latin which means from yourself. God's life, God's living comes from himself. He doesn't need anyone else. He's always existed. So too the son doesn't need anyone else. Verse 26 can get a little bit weird when it says, so he gave to the son also to have life in himself. It's not, it's actually a lot more simple than complicated. This is not saying that, as some people say, the son is the stream and the father is the spring. As in the son came forth from the father. Um, That's not what it's saying. It's saying on the earth, the son does nothing on his own. He is not working independently and he's waiting upon God the father to do the works. And to to will him to do those works. But the Father gladly wills for Jesus to do those works. And in himself, he gives life. Through his voice, through his words, he gives life. This verse is saying that Jesus gives life of himself, from himself, because he, like God, has life in himself. He's exactly identical to the Father in his nature. By the way... Athanasius, early church father, went to, uh, went to bat against a heresy by a guy named Sibelius. And it was a heresy called modalism that exists even to this day. And in modalism, they, the heresy says that the Trinity is it's one person that shows himself in three different ways. So there's one God in one person in the Godhead. It's just one person. And sometimes he wears the hat of the Father. Hey, I'm the Father. Sometimes, hey, I'm the Son. Sometimes, hey, I'm the Spirit. He just kind of morphs. This is why, by the way, despite our greatest efforts to try and give an analogy for the Spirit it ne- or for the Trinity, it never works. If you say that the Trinity is like the three parts of water, you can have liquid, solid, gas. I understand what you're saying, and I appreciate what you're trying to do, but that's modalism. It's all water, just taking different forms, take, taking different modes, to use the word in the, in the title, modalism. Athanasius said, no, there are three persons in the Godhead. And he actually, before any other verse, he went to this verse, which I find surprising because I would have gone to the baptism. I always go there when I talk about this. You have father speaking, son being dunked, spirit descending. He goes to this verse because he says, Verse 26, the father has life in himself and he gave to the son also to have life in himself. So clearly they both have the exact same nature, but the father gave somebody something. There are two people here that one gives to the other. So it can't be one person. It has to be two people. He then went to John 1. I actually don't even remember if he went to the baptism. That's probably too simple. (laughs) 
we probably didn't, you know, we got to go to harder theological concepts. Let's just stay away. That's easy. These verses prove yet again Jesus is equal to God in his very nature. Verses, uh, verse 27, he's equal to God in his authority for judgment. Remember, he already said that, verse 22, not even the Father judges anyone. He has given all the judgment to the Son. Verse 27 says, he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So the Father says, I am the judge, but I'm going to give you the authority to do that judgment. He is equal to God in the authority that he has in executing judgment. But there's something very interesting here that we have to just camp on for a second. You see at the end of verse 27, it says, He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of Man. Some of your Bibles might have like a little footnote attached to it. There's two ways we can read Son of Man. One is a title. It's from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. It's a messianic title. The Son of Man is going to come. He is going to be God come in the flesh. And that's totally fine. And it works. I actually believe that this is lowercase s, and it's not a definite article the, it's actually an indefinite article a. He is a son of man. What does that mean? He's human. Why is it necessary for the judge of humanity to be human? And, and is that a biblical concept? Because we might be splitting hairs here on this. I don't think that we are. Is it biblical? Let me give you some verses. Acts chapter 17, verse 30, or verse 31, sorry. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. This is Paul speaking. Mars Hill. Because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world, so the Father will judge the world, in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Through a man. God the Father is going to judge the world through a man, through a human Turn to Revelation chapter 5. Here's another passage you need to see. Revelation chapter 5. Why did he need to be a man? Why does he need to be a man to judge the world? Revelation chapter 5, verse 2. There was a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book, to break its seals, to enact justice and judgment and finish the end of the world? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. So he begins to weep. This is John writing. So John wrote the Gospel of John. John wrote Revelation. He's weeping because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders came and said, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book. And it's seven seals. Great. The lion has overcome. In verse 6, As I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders... What does John see? He sees a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. And they sing, drop down to verse 9, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were, what? Slain. You purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Why? Does the judge of the world have to be human? Because the judge of the world had to be able to die. God can't die. So Jesus had to become man so that he could die, so that he could judge us in perfect total justice and righteousness. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. He is the satisfaction for our sins, for the the wrath of the Father, because he in perfect humanity came 
tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin, goes to the cross, dies because he's a human, spills his blood to cleanse us from sin. So he is the one that can judge. What did you do with my sacrifice? That's why John says, he's recording Jesus saying, the son of man, a son, will judge. God deems it fitting that the one who will judge us was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. So man is the judge of man. A man, the God-man, will judge us. Verses 28 and 29. Remember Jesus said that he is equal to God in honor, in worship. I'm identical to the Father in honor and worship. The honor that you give to the Father needs to be the honor you give to me. And if you don't honor me, you don't honor the Father. I believe this entire section deals with worship and honor. But I believe here in verse 28, when he says, don't marvel at this, there's greater works. Go back to verse 20. There's greater works than than these so that you will marvel. What are the greater works? He's about to share them in verses 28 and 29. So he says, don't marvel at what I just said. That's an easy thing for God to do. Marvel at this. Marvel at what I'm telling you. My nature is the same as God, my power, my authority, and guess what? I'm going to raise people from the dead. This is what we should worship and marvel at. This is, we can stand before Jesus and be blown away. At what? Verse 28, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Everyone who has ever died will obey Jesus even though they are decomposed bodies. Even though they have no eardrums, they will hear his voice and be raised. Every single person, every human being that has ever lived and will ever live will come forth. That's why it says all who are in the tombs, every single dead person. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Let me give you just two passages. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 says this, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. In Acts chapter 24, verse 15, Paul says before Felix, in his testimony before Felix, uh, that he hopes in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Everyone, not just righteous people, will be raised. Every single person will be raised, either to a resurrection of eternal life or a resurrection of judgment. But we read that. We know that. We read that and we just go, yeah, we're going to be raised on the last day. Guys, let this sink in. A man will say one day to dead people, rise. Uh, To people who have died in the ocean and their bodies have gone all the way to the bottom of the ocean and been eaten by fish, God's going to speak and say, rise. And their bodies are going to come back together and rise. These are truths that should make us worship because we are staring at a man. Look at who we are dealing with. Somebody who can speak to dead people and they obey him. When he speaks, nothingness obeys. Decomposed matter obeys. And this this is my plea for us as a church. You have moments. If you're anything like me, you have moments. You have moments where... You go, yeah, I know who Jesus is. He's the Son of God, and that's great. And I believe him, and, and I'll worship him. Great. And then there are moments where maybe it's 
on a starry night where you, you're staring at the stars and you feel tiny. Or moments like this, when I was studying this going, wait a second, reading this as if I'm reading it for the first time, Jesus is going to speak into existence dead people. Moments where you're blown away at God. You're blown away at Jesus yet again, anew and afresh. This is my plea for our church. Don't let those moments go. Press into those moments. If that's a moment for you here today, if you're saying, I'm in awe of who Jesus is, don't go home today and turn the television on. Don't go home today and and read a book or watch a movie or play a video game. Go home today and press into the awe of Jesus because those moments are God-given moments. Press into who Jesus is. Go home and read the Bible. Go home and memorize verses about Jesus. Go out to lunch and talk about the glory of Jesus with others. Don't let these moments go. We need to treat Jesus the way he should be treated. We don't. That's why we need him. So, every time he does a miracle, even the miracle that he just did in this passage, he's saying, this is just a preview of what I'm going to do. Glory in who I am. Glory in who I am. Now, the end of verse 29 is a little bit confusing for Protestants. It says, those who do the good deeds will go to a resurrection of life, and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So, are we justified by our works? Now, we know that the Bible says no. We know that the Bible says, the rest of the scriptures say, that we are not justified by our works. No man is justified by his works. The book of Romans says time and time again. God is not on our side because of our good works. We are not united to Jesus because of our good works. So then what is being said here? I believe it's the exact opposite. If God is on your side, he's going to empower you to do good works. If you are united to Christ by faith, you will have good works. Um, James should be ringing in your ears, right? Faith without works is dead. Now, we have to stop here and we have to ask, are we reading that into this text? Scripture confirms scripture, but just this verse. Uh, if we were to, if John were here, we were to say, John, what do you think about what I think about what you thought? What do you, what do you think about what I'm thinking now about what you wrote? I honestly believe he would say, look at the rest of the gospel. Look at the rest of my book. Let's use his own words. You know, John chapter 15. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Uh, If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. Um, Because apart from me, you can do what? You can do nothing. So, if if John is going to say in John chapter 15, apart from the vine, you can do nothing, then you can't do good works to get you to the vine. That's impossible. If good works are impossible apart from the vine, then you can't do good works to get you to the vine. So when Jesus says, I'm looking for good works, he's not looking for works that you have done to get you saved. He's looking for works that prove that he saved you. On the last day, it's as if God's going to open up a file of your life. He's going to look through it. I think the majority of us are going to have just a big, fat D-minus. 
But there's going to be evidences. This is God's grace, 100%. This is God's grace, 100%. There's going to be evidence in our files of God saving us. And so when Jesus says, I'm looking for good works, he's saying, in essence, I'm looking for the faith that produced those good works. And if you don't have good works, you obviously didn't have faith. Think about the thief on the cross. He's got a tiny little file. His entire file is an F. Bad works, failure, he should go to hell. One tiny little sentence on one little page that says, proclaimed his guiltiness, confessed his sins, proclaimed the innocence of Jesus, and that by the mercy of Jesus, and only by the mercy of Jesus, can he have any hope of getting to heaven. That's it. And with that 100%, faith is given, works, doesn't really have time for works. I believe in you. You'll be with me in paradise. I can die in peace. Thank you. Done. Maybe he said one thing. He has one little work. But the evidence of the faith that is inside of us, the evidence of our salvation is the works that we see. So verse 30, he says, I can do nothing of my own initiative as I hear I judge And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, this goes back to the works of God, carrying out the very will of God, the way that God the Father works in judging the world. Jesus does that judgment because he relies on the will of God. He doesn't do it himself. Equal to God in nature, equal to God in works, equal to God in power, equal to God in authority, equal to God in the worship and the honor that we should give to him, and equal to God in the amazing, amazing glory in all of these aspects that we see. So what's our conclusion here? Either Jesus is truly who he claimed to be, or he's lying and he knows it. Or his claims are false, but he doesn't know it. I believe that his miracles are proof that he can't be a lunatic. Um... He can't say, I believe that I'm the son of God um, and be doing all of these miracles. He's not insane. He's not a lunatic. And I believe that his miracles and his teaching prove that he's not lying. His life backs up his claims. He is who he claimed to be. How does it end for Jesus? Verse 37 in John chapter 5. The father who sent me, he has testified of me. You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who he sent. They didn't believe him. If we continue this pattern in John, John chapter 7, verse 1, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. They want him dead. John chapter 7, verse 19, he says, Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answers, You have a demon. So they're taking the crowd with him. Chapter 7, verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? They're wanting him dead. Chapter 8, verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, Jesus says, yet you seek to kill me because the word has no place in you. You want me dead. Verse 40, as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am He declares himself to be the I am, and they pick up stones to stone him, to kill him. 
verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 53, from that day on, they planned together to kill him, all of the forces to kill him. Why? Because they heard his claim to be God and they didn't want to bow the knee to it. It's obvious it's there. He proves it time and time again, but they didn't want to bow the knee to it. So as we prepare to celebrate communion, this is my question to us as a church and individually where you are with Jesus Christ. Do you believe his claims and do you worship him for them? We're going to celebrate uh, a word that we hear so often during Christmas, Emmanuel. It means God is with us. Jesus is with us and his name is Emmanuel. He is God with us. The question is, how do you approach God with us? Do you, like so many people, say, he's a really good person, great moral teacher, and I want to be like him, a peaceable man. He's not a great moral teacher if that's all he is. He's a liar. If all he is is a great moral teacher and he's not God, very God, he's a liar. But if he is God, very God, he deserves, as we sang, our full homage. He demands it. The only way that you will come before Jesus in worship is if you realize, like the thief on the cross, I have no hope in myself. I have no hope in myself. What we celebrate when we take communion is we celebrate that the hopeless were given hope by the work of another. Christmas is all about hopeless people saying, we will die if it's not for the help of another. We can't do anything to earn God's favor. We need help. And Christmas is God the Father saying, I'm going to send one who is equal in very essence and nature to who I am. I'm going to send Jesus who's going to pay the penalty for your sins so that you can be reconciled to me. The hopeless are given hope. Through the body of Jesus, a perfect sinless life, he's a man. Through the blood of Jesus, poured out for the sins of those who would believe. This is our Savior. Let's remember him as we prepare to partake of communion. God, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you for his amazing love towards us in his humility to even come. He could have just said no and stayed behind and all of humanity would have been lost. But you in your grace ransomed us and gave us hope. So we rejoice and we celebrate the God-man dying in our place, rising to newness of life. And at this time, we celebrate the birth of the one who would make this all happen. God, be pleased as we turn our attention to the hopelessness of our sinful condition, that we can't get to you on our own, and the grace of Jesus that he would come to us.